very familiar passage from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Thanks be to God. Now, now we have the second Bible reading, um, Psalm 49. Hear this, all you peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the harp. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of my persecutors surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no ransom avails for one's life. There is no price one can give to God for it. For the ransom of life is costly and can never suffice that one should live on forever and never see the grave. When we look at the wise, they die. Fool and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they named lands their own. Mortals cannot abide in their pomp. They are like the animals that perish. Such is the fate of the foolhardy, the end of those who are pleased with their lot. Like sheep, they are appointed for show. Death shall be their shepherd. Straight to the grave they descend, and their form shall waste away. Shoal shall be their home. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Shoal, for he will receive me. Do not be afraid when some become rich, when the wealth of their houses increases, for when they die, they will carry nothing away. Their wealth will not go down after them. 
Though in their lifetime they count themselves happy, for you are praised when you do well for yourself, they will go to the company of their ancestors who will never again see the light. Mortals cannot abide in their pomp. They are like the animals that perish. Amen. Thank you to Howard and Libby for reading those passages for us. And uh, Libby, you're quite right to note that I was switching them around and we had the Old Testament second and the New Testament first. Uh, we're doing a summer series on the Psalms. And so uh, if you've been paying attention, you'll have noticed that what I'm doing is putting the Psalm that we're preaching on as the lead into the sermon and then putting the kind of allied New Testament text a bit earlier. This raises, I think, something of an interesting methodological question about what we think we're doing when we engage with uh, the Hebrew Bible, which we often call the Old Testament. And our usual pattern of Old Testament reading followed by New Testament reading followed by um, sermon sets up a chain of interpretation whereby we read the Old Testament or encounter the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And, and one of the little challenges I've tried to set myself for our sermons on the Psalms this summer has been, what if we try and encounter these Psalms in their own right without putting a, a filter of a Christian reading between us and them? But that's not to say, of course, that they don't have a Christian tradition. And so when Jesus uh, uttered those wonderful words in the Sermon on the Mount, he would have had Psalm 49 in the background. And he was, you know, riffing off the themes of Psalm 49 when he offered his own reflections about the meaning of life. So just, just a few notes, really, about the tensions of how we come to balance our reading of the Hebrew Bible with our reading of the New Testament and our own uh, Christian engagement with it. So moving on, perhaps, to looking at Psalm 49 for a few moments now. Um, as I was preparing uh, this sermon earlier this week, I found myself struck by the parallels between Psalm 49 and the lyrics of a couple of uh, more contemporary psalms, uh, which take the form of pop songs. Both these songs, like Psalm 49, reflect on the fleeting nature and value of life. The first is from the 1970s, and it was written by Brian May, the famous astrophysicist, who also happens to be the guitarist for the rock band Queen. And it's the song, Who Wants to Live Forever? It was the theme tune for the film Highlander, if you remember that, starring Sean Connery telling the story of an age-old war between immortal warriors. Well, here's a couple of verses. Uh, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to attempt to sing, and my electric guitar is remaining firmly in its case upstairs. But the words are, there's no time for us, there's no place for us. What is this thing that builds our dreams yet slips away from us? Who wants to live forever? There's no chance for us. It's all decided for us. This world has only one sweet moment set aside for us. Who wants to live forever? I think you can see how that's echoing some of the themes that were in the psalm that Howard read for us. The other song is more recent and is from the 2008 Coldplay album, Viva La Vida. And here again is just an extract of a few of the lyrics. I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning, I sleep alone, sweep the streets I used to own. 
I used to roll the dice, feel the fear in my enemy's eyes, listen as the crowd would sing, now the old king is dead, long live the king. One minute I held the key, next the walls were closed on me. I discovered that my castles stand upon pillars of salt and pillars of sand. I hear Jerusalem bells are ringing, Roman cavalry choirs are singing. For some reason I can't explain, I know St. Peter won't call my name. Never an honest word. That was when I ruled the world. Both these songs take us right into the territory addressed by Psalm 49, which asserts the fatalistic reality that rich and poor, wise and foolish, will all share the darkness of the grave together for eternity. This psalm is one which fits the category often known as the psalms of disorientation. These psalms give voice to the realisation that the old certainties of life, health, wealth and prosperity, that these are in fact capricious blessings and useless as a method of judging a life's worth. Health can desert any of us in an instant. Wealth and prosperity can be taken from us at a moment's notice. Just think of what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. The evil prosper and the righteous suffer and there seems no justice to any of it. These are the insights of the Psalms of disorientation. Like the deposed king in Coldplay's song, who sweeps the streets he used to own, power is no guarantee of happiness. So Psalm 49, along with the other Psalms of disorientation, challenges those who read it to look at their lives, to consider the so-called certainties of our existences, and to realise that the seemingly unshakable pillars of our worlds are merely pillars of salt and sand, as Coldplay put it. And so Psalm 49 invites its readers to consider two ways of living, which it characterises as the way of life, or the way of death. It's seeking to correct a profound confusion about what in fact makes for life. Because many people, all too easily and wrongly, regard the way of death as the way of life. Psalm 49 begins by setting out its audience. And on this, it is interestingly universal in its scope. This is a psalm for all peoples, for all the inhabitants of the earth, for low and high, for rich and poor together. This isn't just a message for the people of God. It isn't just a message for the rich, nor just for the poor. This is a psalm for everyone, for all of us. And the reason for this universality is that it is a psalm in the tradition of ancient wisdom literature. The clues are there in the opening verses when it speaks of wisdom and understanding of the proverb and the riddle, which suggest that what is about to be taught is not going to be obvious common sense. This psalm is going to take its readers beyond the superficial, 
into the world of the deep hidden wisdom of God that belies the easy and obvious wisdom of the world. In fact, the counterintuitive nature of the wisdom on offer here has already begun to be revealed in the universal nature of the call to wisdom. You see, the world does not teach the rich alongside the poor. It does not educate the stupid alongside the wise. We see this in our own society, where despite the best aspirations of comprehensive education, advancement to higher echelons remains stubbornly dependent on the wealth and status of your parents, the postcode you grew up in, the colour of your skin and the school you went to. But this psalm begins with a call for all to be taught together. The wisdom it is about to offer is a wisdom for everyone. Because all are equal. And that insight that all are equal, all are equally deserving of hearing wisdom, is an appreciation of the equality of humanity. And I think this is something that we need to discover and rediscover in our own lives, in our communities of faith, and in our society. The wisdom of God is not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is for all, rich and poor, high and low, educated and uneducated. Those who are economically and educationally disadvantaged do not, in some way, deserve their lot in life. And neither do the rich or the successful. And one of the glories of churches is they can be places where these barriers that exist out there in society can begin to be broken down as we discover our fundamental equality before God. But one of the tragedies of churches is that all too often they preserve, mirror or even amplify the divisions that exist within wider society. From Christianity's collusion with slavery, which is utterly shameful, to its oppression of women, to its exclusion of those who are LGBTQ+. I think we still need to discover in our churches the wisdom of this psalm that before God all are equal. But this conviction of equality is only the beginning of the wisdom on offer here, because it has yet to address the question of justice of why it is that the good and the faithful so often end up impoverished, while the schemers and the dealers so often come out on top. This is the question that theologians call the question of theodicy. We've spoken about this previously in our series on the Psalms. And it isn't a speculative or theoretical question. It's an experiential question for many of us, because for so many people, for so many of us, life can just sometimes be incredibly unfair. And how do we square the unfairness of life with a belief in a God of justice? Well, from the perspective of Psalm 49, this circle is squared at death. Death, says Psalm 49 is the great leveller. All the imagined advantages of well-being and power and wealth that the rich take their comfort in 
are um, in fact of no consequence from the perspective of the grave. As the modern proverb succinctly puts it, you can't take it with you. So this psalm says we're all equal before God because we are all equal in the end. And so it asks the question, what is the point of life? What are we to do with our three score years and ten plus a bit, hopefully? Is it a question of enjoying it now while you've got it? Or is there more to life than the drive to simply fulfil our desires? And this is where the psalm takes us next as we read it through. It starts to reflect on the purpose of life from the perspective of the grave. And the first area it addresses is that of the human experience of fear. The psalmist asks rhetorically in verse 5, why should I fear in times of trouble? I mean, we all do. The psalmist is going, well, you know, if we're going to die anyway at some point, why should we be afraid in times of trouble? For so many people, fear is the dominant and driving force that keeps them from living fully the life that is before them. Now, clearly not all fear is bad. You know, a fear from falling from a great height is healthy and perfectly sensible. But if your fear of heights stops you, for example, I don't know, going up the Eiffel Tower by night to see Paris by moonlight, then that fear has long since ceased to be life-preserving and has instead become life-inhibiting. And so many of us are constrained and constricted by fears which, although they may have their origin in something sensible and helpful, end up taking the experience of life from us. I'm thinking fear of failure, fear of loneliness, fear of rejection, fear of change, fear of uncertainty, fear of getting hurt, fear of being judged, fear of inadequacy, fear of missing out, fear of losing control, fear of something bad happening. Do you share these fears with me? All these and so much more hold us back and stop us being who we were made to be. And so the psalmist asks, and I paraphrase, really, what's the worst that could happen? You're going to die anyway, we've already established that. So what is the point of being afraid? That is what I mean when I say the psalmist is looking at life from the perspective of the grave. But... The freedom from fear that we may gain by looking at life from the perspective of life's end is not cast as a kind of self-help mantra to unlock success and well-being. Far from it. Unlike the myriad of websites which promise systems for overcoming fear and achieving your potential, this psalm takes the opposite view. It says, there's no point accumulating wealth and power for its own sake. And there's no point being envious of or intimidated by those who do. They can't take it with them and neither can you, so it's all meaningless. Better to do something else with your life. Something that has an eternal value, 
rather than a temporal valuation. And so the psalm says that those who are pleased with their lot in life go down to shale, to the darkness of the grave, and all their efforts in the end amount to nothing. But, says the psalmist, there is another way of living. And the psalm offers it to us in the extraordinary verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for God will receive me. The wisdom of this psalm, which is available to everybody, regardless of who they are, is that the meaning we seek in life is found not in wealth or power or privilege, and neither is it found in the asceticism of poverty, chastity and obedience. Rather, life's purpose, that which transcends the moment and acquires eternal value, life's purpose is found in God, in realising that one's status and value are not a function of possessions or education, but simply of knowing ourselves to be God's dearly loved children. Verse 7 says that the rich cannot redeem themselves. Verse 15 says God can and does redeem the lives of those who trust in God. All the moments of our lives find their eternal value as they are received into the eternally loving arms of God. Now we need to be a bit careful here to get our methodology right that I was talking about earlier. We should not try and impose a kind of modernist Christian belief in the afterlife on this ancient Jewish text. That way of looking at what happens after death had not entered the Jewish tradition at the time this psalm was written. This psalm is not talking about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And so I don't think we should either when we're preaching on a psalm like this. Rather, this is the psalmist's answer to the question of what makes for a meaningful life in the face of injustice. And the answer it gives is relatively straightforward and I think quite simple. The wisdom of this psalm is that a meaningful life is a life that is meaningful to God. I'll say that again, a meaningful life is a life that is meaningful to God. A life of eternal value is found in a life that is focused beyond itself. A life focused on the divine other and not on the temporary rewards of the here and now. You do not construct meaning in your life by the accumulation of possessions or power. Meaning in life is a gift from God who finds your life meaningful. And so reading this ancient psalm in the 21st century, I think it brings a surprisingly contemporary challenge to us. Firstly, I think it invites us as Christians to move away from seeing this life as a dress rehearsal for some eternity beyond this moment. And it invites us to engage the days that we have as the gift of life 
in which eternal meaning is found because God finds meaning in us. But it also then invites us to consider, I think, the world of consumer capitalism from an alternative perspective. The world tells us that meaning is found in possessions and status and privilege. And this psalm says, no, it isn't. None of that comes with you into eternity. It might be nice to have whilst you've got it, but it is not the meaning of your life. This psalm opens the door to another way of finding value in life. And it confronts us with a God who seeks out new life precisely amongst those who are marginalised by the present system. The poor, the uneducated, the disadvantaged, those who are excluded by the values of this world are the recipients of the good news of this psalm every bit as much as those who are advantaged by the values of this world. And so rich and poor, educated and uneducated, included and excluded, all of us alike are invited to embrace the wisdom of this psalm, which critiques the economic powers of our world. And as it does so, disarms the power of fear that holds us so subservient to the systems of social control around us. Because if our trust, if our ultimate trust is in God, and if the meaning of our lives comes from our lives being meaningful to God, then the days allotted to us acquire their eternal value. And life today is encountered as truly and fully meaningful, both to us and to God. And I think this is good news. This is ancient wisdom from the Jewish tradition that I think speaks so powerfully to the way we value and live our lives in the present. Thank you. We're going to ask the panel to join me. I think Duncan and Liz and Jeff, I believe, is uh, out there in the great wide world. Yep. Are you there, Jeff? Yep. Okay, good. Nice to see you. Okay. I'm, I'm fine not being on camera, it's fine. <laughs> I wanted to go off on a, a tangent uh, from this sermon. Uh, so stick with me, it gets to somewhere interesting. Simon said we need to be careful here not to try and put try and impose a belief in the afterlife on this ancient Jewish text. My Bible references from this verse to Maccabees chapter 7 verse 9 for the concept of a reward in an afterlife. So dated after the revolt in 167 BCE. That chapter is in my view the most gory in my Bible which is the New Jerusalem so I have one and two Maccabees. It describes the execution of seven sons by being fried alive with their encourage with encouragement from their mother for refusing to eat pork. I thought the story apocryphal in all senses of the word, 
except that at the same time as I came across it, I read Desmond Tutu's stories from South Africa and of North Korea executing Christians with a road roller. Modern stories of barbaric levels of inhumanity. This story from the Maccabees demonstrates the depth of Jewish commitment to the food laws, yet little more than two centuries later at the Council of Jerusalem, the infant Christian community, then little more than a Jewish sect, walked away from imposing Jewish food laws on Gentile converts. That's a stunning transition. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Duncan, have you uh, got anything you want to Well, I was thinking about my experiences when I was a young reporter and the first job I had on a local newspaper. And I can remember the editor saying to me, no death is tragic and no death is sad in this newspaper. So we weren't supposed to write the tragic death of a 17 year old in a traffic accident or the sad passing of somebody, you know, who's greater age or something like that. The editor said that we weren't supposed to attach these value judgments to the deaths that were reported in the newspaper, because in fact, his point was that all deaths were tragic and sad. <laughs> I've been struck by that actually, and I, it, it, you know, now I'm working with the economist group, they probably more or less follow that rule as well. But the tabloid newspapers, which I also enjoy reading, are full of tragedies and sad deaths. The police often say, you know, sadly, the person was found deceased. Um, but, there, but there was an idea, I think, in my editor's mind at the start, that death was the great equaliser. And I was also thinking about Simon's comment that the church has amplified social divisions in some ways. And Yuka and I have been worshipping at some other churches sometimes on Sunday mornings, including beautiful St. George's over there. Father David's great speaker, by the way. It's a really terrific church. But of course, they have these graves, don't they, of the people that worshipped in the church over the centuries. And they often refer to the status that these people had in their lives. You know, they were the councillor or the governor or the rector or whatever. And sometimes their attributes are listed underneath. So, you know, inevitably, the churches reflect the societies in which they stand. But I'm kind of glad that this church doesn't have graves in it, not mine, <laughs> or anybody that I know, uh, because in a sense, it's a great equalizer. The people that have worshipped here before have, are with us still in some way, but they're not commemorated by their names or their achievements. Um, and I think that this Bible passage, this psalm, uh, you know, evokes in me um, that, that sense of, uh, you know, the equality of the grave um, th that had occurred to me in those two different contexts. Yes. How did it affect you? <clears throat> um, forgive me if this is going to be a bit disjointed, because I'm not sure it quite follows on necessarily from Jeff or, or in fact, Duncan. But um, and in some ways, I really wanted to come up with something, um, I don't know, to, to think of something different. I was talking to um, Jackie earlier this week, and I said that th there's a, an idea that everyone's got one sermon. And I think on the panel, every, uh, often everyone's got one thing that they, they end up saying, or certainly I do. Um, 
And for me, the word once again, which I keep coming back to is perspective. So um, that's for me what I keep hearing. And I heard Simon mention it in the sermon and I, I was jotting down a few notes and the, the first um, reading when uh, sort of, you know, do not worry. Well, as somebody who worries about lots of things, I think it's really easy to say, do not worry. And then of course, in the other the second reading, it's, you know, don't, don't be afraid, don't fear, what's the point in fear? But I think that they're so natural reaction. Um, but I think that what I took from this was the, the kind of need to change perspective again, because obviously um, the, the we are all equal, um, the, the grave being the, the, the equalizer. Um, so often we are trapped by our own perspectives on things. We're, we're trapped by how we see status and we see people being important and we see um, other people not being important. And we're all guilty of that. And I, I think that the thing I keep having to realize is that so often I have to, to get to a position where I'm willing to change that perspective when I'm, um, when I'm thinking about this church but thinking about my life and, and what it's worth um, and and I think but the other really important thing is that perspective then causes us to have to do something because if everyone is equal then it's not just a case of sort of a self-help thing where you're like well everyone's equal but it means that we have to work to make that a reality um, so that's yeah the thing I say every time really <laughs> okay fine thank you very much um, and my eye has been drawn to the call to worship as I've been standing here. And uh, there's that one line in it, all are equal in the sight of God. Let the rich and poor hear God's wisdom, which is from the psalm that we had. And uh, I think that's where, we're going, that's where I would like to end it. We're all equal, as this says, in the sight of God. Thank you very much. In our prayers today, I'd like to invite us to bring before God the things that we fear. Loving God, we thank you for the invitation to consider our deepest fears and most primal anxieties and to share them with each other in this Christian setting. We acknowledge before you that there are many things of which we're afraid. We fear growing old, we fear being lonely, we fear losing capacity or becoming infirm. We fear rejection by someone we love or having to say goodbye to people who are close to us. We fear not finding the right job, the right partner or having problems at home. We fear being poor, losing status, messing things up, letting people down. And we know that there are many times when our actions and our indifference cause other people to be afraid. We're sorry for the times when we have caused hurt, especially for the situations when our words and behaviour have created bad feelings in other people. Deep down in all of us lies a fear of death, sometimes as a distant shadow on the horizon, sometimes as a darkness that presses in upon us. We pray for people who are living in parts of the world where death and violence have surged, bringing chaos and turmoil. Teach us meaningful ways to respond. Despite all this inevitable and unavoidable anxiety, just for today, 
we feel joy in being alive. We thank you for our lives and all their richness. We celebrate, celebrate being present in this world at this moment. We came together this morning because you have called us here. You found us when we were lost and lacking in direction and purpose, and you offered us a warm welcome. We praise you for this opportunity to work, turn towards you and towards each other. We give you thanks for our church family. We thank you for the chance to come back and meet again online and to be in the church building again. We think of those who are caring for members of their families, recognizing the particular difficulties they face at the moment in the wake of lockdown and during the school holidays. We know that fear need not overcome us. As dark as death may be, particularly for those suffering with grief, light and life are greater. May the living flame of hope guide us as we face the future. In Jesus' name, amen.